You are listening to a sermon by New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. It's lovely to be with you this morning. Um, Let's stand together, if you're able, to read uh, God's holy word from the letter of James, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. You can find it printed in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He or she is a double-minded person, unstable in all their ways. Please be seated. Let's pray, Lord. Open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word, that hearing your living voice we might live and learn to follow you for Jesus' sake. Amen. As you can probably hear already, uh, you'll have to bear with me a little bit this morning because I'm preaching in my second language. Uh, American English is not my native tongue. So if I say anything that you you don't quite catch, you can always ask me afterwards. Uh, I think it was only at least two or three times I had to look up a word that I was about to write down in my notes to make sure, do Americans actually use that word and will they... Well, they know what on earth I'm talking about. Have you ever thought to yourselves, it shouldn't be this difficult. I must be doing something wrong. Uh, the time that I tend to think this to myself is normally when I'm fixing something around the house, doing something like DIY or something uh, mechanical. Most recently, it was the kids' bikes. They'd been shipped over from Australia Uh, The uh, person who'd uh, packed the house had uh, kindly dismantled many of the bolts in the bike uh, without my knowledge, and so now it was my job to put it back together, Uh, and I got it back uh, in triumph, uh, mostly into one piece, and the last part was uh, to screw in the foot pedals. Well, one went in without uh, any fuss, uh, and then the next one just wouldn't go in at all. It was the last piece. I was awaiting my triumph, right? my manly triumph of having put the the bike back together. Try as I might, I couldn't do it. And after a while, there I am thinking, it shouldn't be this hard. I must be doing something wrong. Now, if you know anything about bikes, you might know what I was doing wrong. Because this bolt was one of those infernal bolts uh, that breaks the great divine law of righty-tighty-lefty-loosey. It was left-threaded, 
and so once I realized that and saw the picture of the threads, I knew I had to screw it in the other way, and it went in easy, right? I was right. It shouldn't have been that hard. I was doing something wrong. But that thought doesn't apply to everything, does it? There are some things which are just hard by nature, and if we think to ourselves, I must be doing something wrong if it's this hard, we'll mislead ourselves. If you want an example of this, look at the Olympics at the moment. Here are people who have, through blood and sweat and tears, suffered great costs and difficulties to be able to get where they are. And if you see them win medals and cry afterwards, that's what they'll talk about. There's no way they could have got to where they've gotten without difficulty. Some things are just by nature difficult. And if we're to go on in them, we have to accept that. And this is at least part of the reason that James is writing in his letter, or at least a part of the reason he teaches these people about faith. Faith in God, says James, one of his main themes, is always faith that experiences testing. It has to survive those tests if it's to mean anything and gain God's approval. Now, this letter that we just read from this morning, I, I searched high and low in the Bible to find a part of the Bible that Ted hadn't preached on, and I finally found one after much labor. Uh, and he, he's, uh, he hasn't preached a series on James, so I thought we, we'd have a look at chapter one. This letter is almost certainly from James, the brother of the Lord Jesus, the pillar apostle at Jerusalem. Uh, some of the reason I, th I think it's him is because he simply says James at the beginning. Right? This is like when someone rings you up and says, it's John on the phone, right? and you know who that John is because they say it's just John. Uh, this James is the famous James right? who lived longer than the other James, James the brother of the Lord Jesus. And here in this letter, he distills his wisdom right, for Christians to know how to live. A wisdom which is his but also that he learnt from his old, older brother, the Lord Jesus. And so as you read this letter, you'll hear lots of echoes of Jesus' teaching. He says he's writing to the 12 tribes uh, in the dispersion. That is, he's writing to Christians in the places that Jews had been scattered ever since the exile, probably from northern Egypt all the way to Mesopotamia. All those places we hear about Jews coming from in Acts 2, if you ever had to, to read that, in church and stumble over all those place names. Uh, those, those are places that he's probably writing to. And so James is writing from Jerusalem to a whole width of geography, a whole slew of places. And he doesn't know these people, probably. He doesn't know exactly what it's like to live in every place he's writing to. But nevertheless, because of what Jesus taught, he does know what it's like to be a Christian in these last days. He knows that the Christian life is one that by nature is marked with difficulty. And in fact, there's, there's three things here uh, in these first eight verses that he wants these Christians, who he doesn't know, but he knows they're Christians and says they need to know, and things that we need to know uh, as Christians too. And the first is this, verse 2, the Christian life is one which simply by assumption is full of difficulty. See, James, verse 2, simply assumes 
what we often question or inwardly fight against. We think, I must be doing this Christian business wrong. Have you ever thought that? I must be doing this Christian thing wrong because it's just so hard. But James says, count it all joy, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, he's referring to all Christians, when you meet trials or difficulties of various kinds. Not if, not if you meet trials and difficulties, but when. The Christian is just going to encounter these things. Sooner or later, to some degree or another, you will experience difficulty in the Christian life. What does James mean, though, by trial? What is he talking about? I think often when we think of Christian suffering in the Bible, our mind defaults to the issue of persecution. Right? That is, being specifically opposed for following Jesus. Because the New Testament does have lots to say about that. Does James then mean what Paul means when he says that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, when he says that to Timothy? Well, he certainly means that, but I think he means more. Because if you look verse 3, he parallels this statement, trials of various kinds, with another phrase, the testing of your faith. The testing of your faith. What James is talking about here is anything that tests a Christian's faith. Anything that makes us feel like giving up. Those things that sap our faith, that seem to stretch them, stretch it to straining point. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I always assume that to you who I'm preaching, I'm probably a little bit uh, more ungodly, but but maybe not that much more ungodly. So I'm assuming that, like me, uh, that you experience this testing of faith in the whole gamut of experience. Perhaps it's in big things. Great suffering that seems to threaten to just smash faith. The loss of someone in your family who you love. A marriage uh, that is on the rocks. Or perhaps it's something small. Have you ever found, again, are you as ungodly as me? Have you ever found yourself questioning your faith, wondering whether God loves you because you didn't make that light, that traffic light, and you needed to be somewhere? It's not exactly cosmic suffering, is it? And yet these little things stretch our faith. Or maybe it's strange things. Again, a, a personal confession, the thing I find most discouraging in the Christian faith is when I see other people I know giving up. It's kind of a strange thing to discourage you, but it does, at least for me. James speaks of all these things, anything that tests your faith, stretches it, beats on it. Could be anything. And James says that this is simply going to come. And when he says that, he's really just speaking in concert with the rest of the New Testament. It's good for us to remember how quickly Jesus and the apostles, when they preach the gospel, move almost immediately to the issue of suffering. That is, they'll proclaim the good news, call people to follow Jesus, and then warn them you're going to suffer. It's going to be difficult. 
Jesus, for example, in the middle of the Gospels, when the disciples are just doing kind of Messianism 101, just about working out who Jesus is, and they've started to be clear, Jesus says, I'm going to the cross, and good news, you're going too. Anyone who wants to follow me must take up his cross and follow me. Or Paul right, goes around, uh, it says in Acts, encouraging the disciples. And what is part of his encouraging message? Um, it's the verse I often joke is my wife's uh, sort of banner verse for our marriage. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We shouldn't be shaken, says Paul, by afflictions. And he says in Thessalonians that I always kept warning you beforehand that this would happen. Paul was only in Thessalonica for about two or three weeks. And he was clear with them about Jesus and what it meant to believe in Jesus. And he says he was really clear, you're going to suffer if you're a Christian. But what's especially interesting here to me in chapter 1 is that he's speaking to Christians together. See, perhaps we've begun to wrestle with and accept that I, as a Christian, will suffer in my Christian life. I will experience trials and difficulties. But have we begun to accept that for one another as well? You see, if what James says is true... When he says, brothers and sisters, you plural, that you plural would become perfect through trials and sufferings, it means that even though we don't know each other very well, most of you probably don't know me well, that you know something about me and I know something about you already. I know that you're a sinner. But the Bible says as well that I know about you as a Christian that you, not just me, but you are going to experience trials and difficulties. What we learn to accept for ourselves, we must learn to also expect for one another. And we must learn to relate to one another on the basis of it. And yet, why is it then that so often we're tempted to, or even do hide, our trials and our difficulties from each other? Perhaps we hide the severity of the trial. Or not so much we conceal the severity, but we conceal and downplay how much it's testing our faith. But according to James, a trial that doesn't test your faith isn't a trial. All things that are difficult in the Christian life do beat on and bash our faith. And so we must beware, we must not engage in a kind of Christian Facebook effect. Maybe some of you are on Facebook. The temptation, isn't there, to display your life in the best possible light to others. You know, there are some people who on Facebook post photos of them, friends of mine who post photos of their messy houses. Oh, my house is such a mess today. It looks like something out of Better Homes and Gardens. It's, more, it's cleaner and tidier than my house on the best day. And what does it do when we portray this kind of sanitized face to other people? In essence, even though we say Christians will suffer, by our lives we project to one another and even to the world, not very much though. Or at least it's not troubling me very much. Now, rather, James says we will suffer and we ought to expect that for one another 
And we ought not to hide those things from one another, lest we both keep ourselves from the encouragement of other Christians and also preach a kind of false gospel to one another that the Christian life isn't that difficult after all. So James then assumes that if the Christian life is difficult, it might be actually because we're doing it properly. But he doesn't just stop there. He's not engaging in a kind of a pastoral Charlie Brown theology, right? Life is hard, amen. The assumption comes for him in a command, count it utter joy. Count it completely, all there really is complete. Count it complete joy. Well, how are we to do that? Surely the whole point about trials and difficulties is that they're not pleasant. They're sometimes even evil things. So how can we do this? Well, note the structure of the sentence here. Count it all joy or utter joy because, verse 3, you know something. See, secondly here, James makes it clear that the Christian gains from trials and difficulties. This command to count it all joy comes because Christians know something, verses 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Or I think the word perseverance is probably even better in, in modern English. And let perseverance have its full effect, that you may be perfect, right, or reach your goal, and complete or whole, lacking in nothing. See, when we go under trials, James says, we get something as Christians. They work something. Perseverance. Now, I think uh, in Christian language, perseverance is a positive word for us, isn't it? We think of it being something always good. But if you persevere in the wrong kind of thing, it can be bad. Or if you persevere in something which is unattainable, it can be pitiable. Right? Think about Wiley Coyote. Wiley Coyote always chasing Roadrunner, always falling off the cliff, always getting blown up by his Acme bombs, or however you pronounce that word, uh, always going down the wrong path. Children, if you don't know who Wiley Coyote is, you can go home and rebuke your parents for failing in your Christian education, okay? <laughs> this is not the kind of perseverance that James is talking about. It is not a fruitless and purposeless and frustrating perseverance, but one that results in something. Notice the chain he sets up here. One thing, right, testing produces perseverance, and perseverance produces something else. It has a perfect work, a complete work. In fact, James goes on to use two words that explain something about this goal that perseverance leads to. He says that you, plural, may be perfect and complete. The first word really has the idea of reaching your goal. That is, trials beget perseverance. Perseverance brings you to your goal. The second word helps us understand what that goal is. It means something like whole. Whole. And it's often used, if you look in the Old Testament, about animals that were offered in sacrifice to God. That is, um, God requested the people to give to him from what they had. 
And there was a range of animals that they could give. That is, the type wasn't always specified. But what was specified is that it, the animal had to be whole. Like it couldn't be the ragged, flea-bitten, one-legged, part sheep, right? Who the wolf had kind of gotten at, and now you're going to offer it to God. I, I used to, um, when I was in New Zealand and doing my PhD, I used to help with a church down in the south of New Zealand that's fairly rural. And down there's lots of people uh, in the church who are sheep and beef farmers. And so if you go around to their house for lunch, you're almost certainly going to get lamb. Um, often very good lamb. If you said to your host, it's a lovely piece of lamb, and he said, oh yeah, got caught in a, in a barbed wire fence this morning, tried to pull the thing off, the leg came off, it was a sorry mess, I put it out of its misery, and I thought you could have some. <laughs> you wouldn't be very impressed, would you? See, in the same way, Yahweh demanded the best of what the people had, not, oh, that, that lamps needs to be put down. We'll give it to God. And James uses this word, this requirement, that the animals sacrificed to God should be entire, right? Not with a bit coming off. Intact, complete. He uses it of, it's a strange word, he uses it of the result of what trials and perseverance are bringing us to as Christian Christians. And that means there's good news here in this word. You see, I think sometimes we're tempted to think very wrongly about the Christian life, even as Christians, in a way that's often shared with people who aren't. We think that in coming to God and in dealing with God, there's a kind of negotiation in which we think there is a God in heaven and what does he want? He wants to mess around in my life. He wants some bits of my life for himself. Maybe he wants what I do in the bedroom for himself. Or he wants what I've got in my wallet for himself. And then dealing with God is a bit like when you sell a house or buy a house and the closing stages of negotiation are where you sort of dicker over the chattels, right? Dear God, who gets what in this relationship? You do say chattels, don't you, in America? You don't. Stuff like the fridge, right? And the carpets and the, and the curtains and things like that. Who gets what here? God, do I get to keep this bit? Which bit do you get? I looked it up, Julius, and, and it seemed to be used in American English. <laughs> We say it in England anyway. But what James shows us here is that God does not want your sex life or your wallet or your plans for next Thursday or your job. He wants all of it. He wants all of those and everything else. He wants the whole thing. In fact, he demands all of it. Right, as it says in Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And then the last phrase in Hebrew means literally something with everything you've got, with all your all, the whole lot. That's God's demand. He made it all. He wants it all. He's owed it all. And if we get that, if we understand that word, then we'll begin to see the good news here. It's it's true here that not just that God wants it all, but that God has a plan to make sure that in your life he gets it all. 
He sent his son to ensure that in your life you will be wholly his. He's ensuring, notice here, he's ensuring that you'll reach your goal, you'll be perfect. And the end of that goal is that you'll be entirely God's and God's alone wholeness. He's going to do it. And the way that James says he's going to do it is through the testing of your faith. Do you ever find yourself sitting as a Christian, perhaps wondering or even mourning, how can I be more fully God's? It's a good question. Certainly there are things that we do in our Christian life to advance our holiness. Getting rid of sin. Practicing good things. Praying, as we'll come to in a minute. But the great comfort here in James is that actually first and foundationally, your growth in holiness, your coming to the end and goal of your Christian life is God's plan for you, which cannot be defeated. He is absolutely and radically committed to making sure that you will be wholly his. He has set his heart on it and he will do it. And so he sends trials. So I don't know, I I think I often misread this verse until I started thinking about it. Do you ever find yourself doing that? You think you know what it says on the page and then you really look at it and work out what it says. It's meant to be my job. I'm not always very good at it. I I thought that what it said effectively was, if you rejoice hard enough in trials, you'll be sanctified. But that's not what it says. It says rejoice because through these trials, God is sanctifying you, full stop. Trials affect, that is they work perseverance and perseverance works Holiness, your goal. God is doing it. So how do you respond to this then? If this is God's plan and he says he's doing it. If he's really the one in charge, isn't our role just to sort of let go and let God? Well, although most of the time people don't like that phrase, James says something almost like that. Let perseverance or steadfastness have its full effect. Let God do what he's doing. Stop trying to fight him in the midst of trials. Let perseverance do what it wants to do in your life. But that doesn't mean that we're left to only passivity in pursuing holiness, in keeping going. We're to, says James thirdly here and lastly, we're to do something. Verses 5 through to 8. We're to ask God for empowerment, depending on him alone and not hedging our bets. That's my kind of interpretative gloss of verses 5 through 8. We're to ask God for empowerment, depending on him alone and not hedging our bets. See, James has told us that we will go through trials and be brought to a place in which we'll be perfect and whole, lacking in nothing. But then notice immediately he then begins to speak verse 5 of our lack. We know where we're heading, no lack, but that's not where we are now. 
And so James says that we're to firstly ask God here. That's the main thing he's going to tell us to do. And then in a minute he's going to tell us how to do it. But we're to ask God, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to them. See, James assumes that we have a need for wisdom in the Christian life. When you hear that word, I imagine like me, you probably default to think about choices we make. Dear God, please give me wisdom as I decide about this job or who I should marry or where I should live. But wisdom in James doesn't mean less than that, but it means a whole lot more. Wisdom in James is the power that comes down from heaven, from God, into the life of a person and gives them spiritual life, allowing and enabling them to be a friend of God. As he'll say later in chapter 1, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, verse 17, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shifting or shadow of change, of his own will, right, or by his purpose, he gave birth to us by the word of truth. That's the way he moves from this idea of the gift that comes down to our new life, our birth. It was this divine wisdom, you see, coming down from heaven that got us started on the path of the Christian life. And lo and behold, James says, if you want to keep going, you need to ask for the same thing. Ask God for wisdom, that is power, to keep on keeping on. And as if to fuel that command, he talks about the kind of God that we approach when we ask. We ask a God who gives generous, generously to all without reproach. What does he mean in those two words? Well, it could be generous, but actually more likely what it means is something like straightforwardly. Right, straightforwardly. Or without another motive. And without finding fault. That means without reproaching. That is, God, as we approach him, is not like the person on the help desk. Have you ever encountered people on help desks, like at a mall? You're looking for a store, you're in this massive mall, you have no idea it is. You go to the informational help desk, and when you ask for help, their response gives you the impression that they don't really think it's their job to give you help. <laughs> don't you have a phone? Can't you just look on Google Maps and find where it is? I was busy doing something else. I I thought this was the help desk. They criticize you for asking. God is not like that, says James. When we come to him, because we know that we lack and we ask God to help us, lo and behold, he doesn't criticize us for asking, but helps. But also he doesn't say one thing or behave towards us in one way, but really he has ulterior motives. He's straightforward. That is, he's not like an English person uh, who invites you round to tea or says they hope to see you soon. See, often when an English person meets you and you don't get on with them, they'll part by saying, I do hope to see you again soon, which means I hope never to see you again. (laughs) Uh, Or in terms of gift giving that James has in mind here, he's not like a Japanese person when they give you an inordinately large gift. 
In Japanese culture, if you have a relationship with someone and then somewhere out of the blue they give you an inordinately large gift, it doesn't mean what often we think, which is, wow, this is a great gift. It means that's the end of the relationship. It's like a full stop saying we've done business, we've been friends or we've done something together, that's it. I don't want to see you anymore. God doesn't give like that. He's straightforward. When you approach him to ask, he responds. When he gives, he's not trying to do something else. He's just giving to you. You see, really what James is saying here, the portrait of God he relies on, is the God who Jesus encouraged us to approach through him. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and God will open the door. And what is standing behind that door for God to give, says James, is wisdom that helps us keep going. But if we're to ask, James also tells us how here, we're to ask God, depending on him alone rather than hedging our bets. Let, verse 6, let the person ask, asking, ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that person think that they'll receive anything from God. They're a double-minded person, unstable in all their ways. So here we're told to ask in faith, that is trusting God, depending on him, and not doing something else. Now here is one place I will quibble with the ESV. Because they translate the word here, doubt, that no elsewhere outside the New Testament means doubt. I don't think James means that we're to ask in faith, never having any doubt. In fact, I wonder whether that would even be possible for us as people. Rather, what he's saying is we're to ask God in faith, not hedging our bets. The word literally means to kind of discern or divide, to split up. Not dividing our allegiances, or I think here, hedging our bets. That is, we're not to be like the kind of person, says James, spiritually, who goes to sort of bet on a horse race, and instead of choosing a horse to bet on, puts on a spread. Bets on multiple horses in the same race. James says that this person spiritually is unresolved, they're in two minds, they're like those kind of clever people in voting in certain states who try to split their ticket, or vote for one party here and another party there. Such a person, says James, spiritually, not politically, is double-minded, disloyal, and unstable. They're like the surface of the sea. We used to live in the south of, Dunedin, uh, south of New Zealand in Dunedin where it doesn't cost a million dollars to have a house that you can see the sea from, right? And a million dollars, who am I kidding? Three million dollars around here, right? Um, you could look out and see not just the shore, but the sea way out. Out to small islands around Dunedin. And what James is talking about is the sea far out where the surface is always changing, rippling, blown by the wind unstable that person says James who approaches God hedging their bets won't get anything 
Well, I'm relying on God, on Yahweh, but I also want to be involved in this. You know, I'm, I'm smart financially and spiritually. I, I spread my investment. But James knows what Jesus said, that really splitting your ticket spiritually isn't possible. No one can serve two masters, says Jesus. They'll either hate one and love the other or love this one and hate that one. It's not possible. So as James says here, if you ask, you won't get stuff. Later, he actually expands and says, when you come to God and ask him for stuff and don't get it, it's because you're asking for things to serve your other God. The person who does this is like someone treating God like a genie. They're asking God to help them to serve a life lived for something else. It's not because God is ungenerous. It's actually an outrageous infidelity on our part. It's like, I realize this is a bit outrageous, but it is this kind of outrageousness. It's like a man stealing money from his wife's bank account to pay for jewelry for the other woman. Dear God, please help me fund my spiritual adultery. And James warns us that the person who acts like that won't get help from God. It's actually good news, isn't it? God won't help you pursue someone else. Can I warn you, if you're trying to do that, if you're trying to have a little bit of Jesus, but also really live for other things, Jesus says you can't do it. It won't work. And it won't work because God won't play second fiddle in your life. He doesn't want to. He won't allow it. But even in that warning then, there's actually good news as well. Because it means that there is a prayer here that James encourages us implicitly to pray, that we know God will answer. Lord, help me to have no other God but you. Lord, help me not to be double-minded, but to be of one heart and mind for you. That is, we can pray with the psalmist, unite my heart to fear you. Unite my heart to fear your name, knowing that God delights to answer that prayer. See, James knows that the Christian life is hard and that God, through troubles, wants us to know certain things. Yes, it's hard, but God is at work in those hard things. God is affecting something. He's making us wholly his. And these obstacles in our path are actually at the same time instruments in God's hand to bring us safely through the Christian race. And as we find ourselves in difficulty, crying out to God for help, that's exactly the economy that God intends. And he'll hear and he'll answer. Let's pray. Lord, so often when things are going wrong, we feel everything is wrong and we cry out to you. It's all going wrong, Lord. And yet, according to James, in a sense, it's all going right. Lord, we know that the things that you send that try us are sometimes inconvenient, sometimes frustrating, and sometimes we experience even evil things. 
And yet somehow, amazingly, in your hands, the hands of the powerful God, they're for our good. And so we ask, Lord, do us good through the trials and difficulties in our lives. Help us to humbly and without complaining share them with one another that we might encourage one another and empower us to keep going and to call out to you for help and to call out to help for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Hear us, Lord, as you say you will. Strengthen us by your heavenly wisdom. Help us to keep on keeping on. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.